Um, so it's, uh, yeah, hydrogen peroxide. So it's actually the same chemical that you would find in the pharmacy in, you know, hair dye or disinfectant or, or teeth whitener. So um, the main difference between the hydrogen peroxide that you find in the shops and the stuff we use of rocket fuel is the concentration. Um, so hair dye is around 3% hydrogen peroxide, whereas um, rocket propellant is 90% and with the remainder being water. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, Downlink listeners. Have I got a treat for you. Disruptive technology that's already being used on Space Force, DARPA, and other DOD missions. And it's green, like better for the environment and humans. It's also the future because more and more governments are looking to ban toxic substances like the number one satellite thruster propellant, hydrazine. So let's break down this episode's basics. Satellites need thrusters. They need them to get to their particular orbit and to raise their orbits so atmospheric drag doesn't pull them back down to Earth. And they need thrusters to maneuver. That's generally to move out of the way of something, to prevent crashes and to avoid space junk, just like the International Space Station regularly does to dodge debris left behind by last year's Russian anti-satellite test. That thruster burn has even got a name, predetermined debris avoidance maneuver. These thrusters need onboard fuel, but here's the rub. The fuel we, and I mean everybody, the US, China, Europe, Russia, the thruster fuel we've been using for decades is the gas hydrazine. And calling hydrazine extremely dangerous is an understatement. It's so toxic that any kind of human exposure to it has serious and permanent consequences. Also, it's not just flammable, it's explosive, which is just what you want out of a thruster fuel, controlled explosions of power. My guests are saying there are better, safer, less technologically complicated gases that'll give even more power more efficiently for less cost. We're going to hear from Benchmark Space Systems Executive Vice President for Business Development and Strategy, Chris Carella, and Don Aerospace co-founder, Yaron Wink. But before that conversation, we're going to get a quick chemistry and fuels lesson from a rocket scientist, Sammy Graham. Here's our conversation. Hello, Sammy. Thank you for making the time to share your knowledge with folks like me who, well, don't really understand moles beyond the garden variety. Hi, Laura. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Sammy, before we start, take a moment and introduce yourself, your scientific background, and what you do at Benchmark Space Systems. Uh, so, I'm Sammy Graham. Um, I'm a propellant chemist and propulsion engineer at Benchmark um, with about eight years experience um, in propellant chemistry in the space industry. Uh, I did my degree in chemistry and physics at Cambridge and moved into um, propellant chemistry at uh, European Astrotech in the UK. So worked in the UK um, as a propellant chemist um, and propulsion engineer, traveling around the world to lots of different launch sites, working on spacecraft and propellant R&D, 
and then moved to benchmark because green propellants are much, much nicer to work on. And the shift in the space industry is towards green propellants. So just for my audience, I want to make one thing clear. Sammy here is a true, no kidding, rocket scientist. So just to jump right in, what the heck is hydrazine or for those who love chemistry N2H4? Cool. So yeah, I was going to say, in case people didn't know, it's made of two um, nitrogen atoms and four hydrogen atoms. Um, It's an acrid, fishy, oily substance. Um, In a bottle, it looks like water, but as soon as you take off the lid, you'll see white toxic fumes escaping. Um, It's extremely reactive. It breaks down into uh, nitrogen, hydrogen, and ammonia. Uh, Ammonia is also a, a toxic gas. It's the most commonly used uh, satellite rocket propellant, very toxic to humans and very carcinogenic. You know, I've also been reading that it's extremely dangerous and Europe has been toying with banning it. What are hydrazine's dangers to humans and the planet? I mean, you just said they're dangerous, but really, you know, what's how? What does it do? Uh, so the the main thing is um, it's acute toxicity. Uh, so to both humans, so permanent neurological and and physical damage. It it hangs around um, in like aquatic environments and and in things like your kidneys and and liver, and and it's it's uh, carcinogenic. Um, so this toxicity, not just of the, the liquids, but it's fumes as well. So it's a, a relatively volatile substance. So if there's a spillage, then hydrazine fumes will escape. Um, so the risk of inhalation is is big. And if you do inhale it, then, you know, it gets in, in your body and lingers. It's also, you know, if you look at the safety data sheet, it's got all the hazard symbols. I mean, just by looking at it, you know, physically looking at the liquid and looking at its data sheet, it, you know, there's a huge list of hazards. Um, uh, so it's corrosive, it's flammable, it's an ir- irritant, um, hangs around in aquatic environments, so the disposal's bad. Uh, and so that's why, you know, the, the EU reach reg, regula, regulatory body is trying to phase it out. The other thing, so as a, a rocket um, scientist, we are decomposing these these products. So in, in the engines, we're, we're decomposing it. And as I mentioned, one of the decomposition products is ammonia. So it's, it's not just, uh, you know, the storable liquid that is toxic. It's also its decomposition products. You know, if it's so dangerous, why on God's green earth is the number one gas satellite manufacturers use hydrazine? I mean, its market is expected to grow to more than $800 million by 2030, but it seems like a very risky substance. Yeah, so uh, uh, there's a couple of reasons. Um, The space industry has historically always used it. And as a very risk-averse industry, changing the heritage and having flight-proven propellants um, is a is a big issue for for the space industry. So heritage is one thing, and being risk-averse to to new things, unless you know they they have got significant heritage. The performance is good as well. I mean, it it does have a very high ISP. There's still, you know, certain properties that are unattractive. So its freezing point is 
you know, around the same as water, which which isn't particularly good for some, especially deep space missions. Um, so there are certain chemical properties that, you know, are not attractive, um, but it's basically a performance standpoint and its heritage are the main reasons it's still being used. Because this episode is looking at the alternatives, which my guests later on are going to explain, why are they less expensive and just as powerful propellants? And let's keep it simple. Let's start with the gas your company, Benchmark, uses, which is high-text peroxide or HTP, aka H2O2. What is that? Um, So it's, uh, yeah, hydrogen peroxide. So it's actually the same chemical that you would find in the pharmacy in, you know, hair dye or disinfectant or or teeth whitener. So um, the main difference between the hydrogen peroxide that you find in the shops and the stuff we use of rocket fuel is the concentration. Um, So hair dye is around 3% hydrogen peroxide, whereas um, rocket propellant is 90% and with the remainder being water. So H2O2, it's, it is, you know, water with an extra oxygen um, atom stuck in the middle of it, which makes it much, much more reactive because that, that extra ox- oxygen wants to escape from the peroxide molecule to decompose into water and oxygen. And this, uh, this you know, makes it, it does make it very flammable. And that extra oxygen loves attacking other materials that it's in contact with as well. So that's what makes it a good propellant. And joining Benchmark on this episode is Don Aerospace. And that company manufactures thrusters that use nitrous oxide or N2O and cyclopropane, which is also known as C3H6. Can you tell us a little bit about those um, substances? Sure. Um, so, gases, so N- sorry, just to be more yeah. exact. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, so, so N2O, um, you you know might have heard of more commonly um, as an anesthetic gas. So, it is used in hospitals. And the the cool thing about um, N2O is it's it's I mean it's a blessing and a curse, but its saturated vapor pressure is extremely high. Um, so that can so it's stored for rocket propellant as a liquefied compressed gas, and then its vapor pressure at room temperature it, it will it will evaporate essentially and boil and and create lots of pressure. So this can be used to feed it into the thruster, which which is useful. Um, it's got a a very low boiling point, and that's you know one of the reasons for this vapor pressure. Um, just co- you know comparing the two, and and one of the reasons like these green propellants are attractive is to do with the density. Um, so both of these are more dense than than hydrazine, which has similar density to water. Hydrogen peroxide has a very high density of about you know 40% more than than hydrazine and then um n2o in its liquid form has about a 20% increase in density above, above that of hydrazine um so so that does give it very advantageous property um performance because of it it's high density you can basically store more energy in a, in a small space so it, their densities, uh, the fact that they're non-toxic, um, and then some interesting kind of unique properties for for each of those. And Yours what about are, cyclopropane? Which yeah, I don't want to forget about six. <laughs> yeah, you don't get away yet. Sorry, don't want to forget about that. Um, I haven't used this uh, this propellant as as much. Um, it, it's it's uh, one of the most uh, simple 
simple um, carbon hydrogen chemical. So it's a it's a triangle of carbon atoms with with hydrogen attached. Um, this uh, again has a, a relatively high vapor pressure. So you know it, it can be used. Um, you, you don't need a, an extra tank to push it out into the, into the thrusters, and has a has a low a low boiling point and relatively high density. Not as good as uh, the others, but yeah. Sammy, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. Great, great to talk to you, Laura. I hope that lesson was as useful for you as it was for me. So now here's the business case from two companies, Benchmark's Chris Carella and Don's Yaron Wink. Here's our conversation. Hi, Chris. Hi, Yaron. Welcome to the downlink. Hey, Laura. Thanks for having us. Hey, Laura. Good morning. Before we get started on talking about the on-orbit propulsion technologies your companies are developing, employing, and hopefully turning a profit on, let's do a quick round of introductions. You know, as this is your company's first time on the podcast, why don't you start us off? Sure. We're uh, Don Aerospace, our uh, space transportation company. We're not where we're not only looking at the, the uh, mobility of spacecraft once they're in space, which of course the, the topic we're talking about today, uh, but also a bit further out, we're developing a, a space plane to deliver these satellites from Earth uh, to orbit. So that's that's on the, the, the launcher side, on the, the in-space side, yeah, where we have developed a, a growing uh, portfolio of our cube drive and set drive uh, product families, which are all based on um, yeah, green propulsion, in our case, nitrous oxide, uh, nitrous oxide and propylene based. And right now, we I started the company together with uh, with my co-founders back in 2017. And right now, we employ around 100 people in our three sites in the here in the Netherlands, in New Zealand, as well as uh, in the United States. And Chris, tell us a bit about you and Benchmark Space Systems. Great, yeah, I'm the vice president of business development and strategy at Benchmark. Um, which is a Vermont-based uh, in-space propulsion company founded in 2017 by our co-founders, Ryan McDevitt and Matt Shea. Um, we earned our first heritage in 2021 off of uh, deployment off Transporter 2 with three engines. Um, since then, we've worked to kind of evolve our identity as an in-space mobility partner that that's a little broader than what we initially set out to do, which was small sat propulsion. Um, in doing that, we've grown to over 90 employees across three facilities worldwide, headquarters here in Vermont. We have a facility in the Bay Area, California, and United Kingdom. And um, so along that journey of becoming an in-space mobility partner, you know, we've been able to make a couple acquisitions along the way. You know, many technologies having to do with propulsion end up being complementary when you start getting into complex or sophisticated missions. Um, so to be more broadly responsive to the market, um, you know, we've we've been able to execute on some opportunities to bring on complementary technologies with um, Tesseract Space, who is also working on non-toxic propellants, and most recently. Um, acquiring metal plasma thruster technology from Alameda Applied Scientist Corporation, AASC. Um, and, and partnerships are a key part of our identity. Uh, we'll continue to do that with EP partners for our hybrid solutions, space situational awareness partners to bolster our integrated GNC capability that we're releasing this year that'll be known as SmartAIM. 
Um, so, so that's kind of the thing. We we set out to to do space a little differently, non-toxic propellant. But as we immersed ourselves in the industry, we were able to identify demand for adjacent or expanded capability, and we've been able to respond to the market and, and integrate those capabilities into our products. Now, both Benchmark and Don started on completely opposite sides of the world a little over five years ago. And for this question, I'd like to start with Chris. What was the problem set Benchmark identified and what was the solution it initially developed? And I say initially because I know now that you have a variety of thruster lines. Chris? Yeah, so um, there were there were two signals. Um, the first, uh, working with Ryan McDevitt, um, with his work at, at University of Vermont, he was working with NASA early on on some technologies before there was really a market for it. Um, but NASA was kind of the first place that Ryan was uh, kind of keyed in that propellants that could be sourced or manufactured in space and or less toxic than than um, state of the art were, were going to be of interest and they were interest to, to NASA. And then that kind of was reiterated on the commercial side. Um, when companies started looking at scaling down their traditional hydrazine systems for this, this new small sat class of satellites, um, the cost and the overhead to work with hydrazine was so tremendous that it doesn't amortize well over these low cost small sat assets. So if a fueling campaign starts at $500,000 um, and you're trying to build a satellite for $500,000, then, then that technology doesn't necessarily scale, scale well. And I know we'll get more into costs later, but um, that was one of the big drivers on the commercial side to look at some innovation on the propellant side. And before we move on, I just want to jump in. You know, a lot of people think about satellites as being the size of a bus or the size of a refrigerator. You know, when you say small sats, you know, what kind of size are we really talking about? And in such a way that, you know, an everyday person would understand it. What is a small sat? Yeah, good question. Because even within industry, that's a question. <laughs> if you ask a, what, what I'll say, a more tenured uh, space uh, participant, th their idea of a small satellite is anything smaller than a school bus. Um, and when you ask somebody working on CubeSats, you know, they, they kind of forget that that there's still anything above 100 kilograms. But small sat in general for benchmark, when, when we think small sat, it, it really is um, anything that, that can kind of go up on a ride share mission. So CubeSat up through OTV or ESPA ring class satellites. So in, in pedestrian terms, it's, uh, you know, the size of a loaf of bread up through uh, a deep freezer or something of that size, potentially a little bit larger. And Yurun, Don is developing a space plane. It what came first, the nitrous oxide thruster or the vehicle? Uh, in fact, the, the space plane came first, but they, they, they shared, let's say, the same origins. So my, my co-founders and I worked at, uh, well, we're studying at the University of Delft and started as an extracurricular building rockets. Later, the uh, building rockets became the prime uh, occupation and um, university became a bit of a sidekick. Uh, but uh, long story short, after a few years of working, we built this very large sounding rocket based on nitrous oxide and, uh, and we launched it and we bro broke some records. Everyone's very happy. But as especially back then, how it went with rockets, um, they end on the bottom of the ocean. 
Well, what kind of records did you break? I mean, you just can't mention uh, records and not explain like uh, what they are. I must say they're a bit niche, but uh, the the European uh, altitude record for amateur rocketry. Uh, So it's a bit bit niche. Uh, But in any case, uh, that was all all great success. But this thing that we just worked worked on for three years was now at the bottom of the ocean. So we said, yeah, the the, the next thing we're going to build together, we're going to get back. So that's how the space plane was born. Uh, but around uh, around that same time, many of the you know we noticed many of the drivers uh, in the market that Chris was already mentioning, and we figured, hey, this this nitrous oxide technology that we developed for the sounding rocket, we're not going to use it for the space plane, but we have the technology, and actually it's a great a great fit for the the spacecraft. Uh, many of the the reasons that led us to this this technology in the student days were driven by you know what can we afford as a uh, you know as a student group, not much. You know, what is easy to get our hands on? Not much. So the, 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 the factors that it was low cost, easily available, widely available, you know, simple logistics that made it suitable for a student project also make it a great fit for the, uh, the growing small salt market. And your company also uses cyclopropane or C3H6, correct? Uh, propylene, yeah, C3H6, correct. Welding gas. Let's go to a customer perspective. You know, what's the economic opportunity? And probably the best way to start that answer is to tell us who your customers are and where they are on earth and in orbit. And Euron, take this one first. Sure. So uh, let's say where they are on earth uh, all around. Uh, so if customers in a strong base in Europe, we have a growing base in the United States and also in some Asia-Pacific uh, countries. Uh, in orbit, there's currently 10 spacecraft uh, carrying amongst them 45 of our thrusters and propulsion systems. Um, and maybe we will name one, one example as uh, kind of, um, yeah, the, 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 the red thread here. Uh, so uh, Ail, that's uh, our customer from Japan. They uh, used to, they have two spacecraft in orbit that they both launch as small launchers. So one with the, the Japanese Epsilon launcher, the other one with Rocket Lab. And now that they're building their third, uh, uh, their third satellite. And they, they need to go for their mission to a very specific orbit. And that's why they used these small launchers before. But then SpaceX came along with their transporter uh, offering and they see, hey, we can, you know, for a fraction, literally, 20% of the launch cost, we can go on this, this transporter, this rideshare mission. But now we can no longer go to this very specific orbit they need to go, uh, they need to go to. So for them, there's a very big value proposition uh, to carry our set drive uh, propulsion system because it gives them the, the low cost and the high frequency launch opportunities of uh, a SpaceX transporter or in the future comparable rideshares. Whereas it also gives them the responsiveness to get to their specific orbit in a very quick manner enabled through our chemical propulsion system. And when we're thinking about, you know, nitrous oxide or propylene, are they the same weight as what's being currently used, such as hydrazine, or actually are they lighter? Um, Yeah, they're a bit lower density, so they're a bit lighter. Uh, They're a bit uh, uh, higher in performance. So overall, it it comes along to around to, to roughly the same, let's say, performance per liter or performance per volume. And with that reduction in weight, would that also reduce the actual, you know, cost of launch? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that is that is not so much related to the uh, the lightness or the density of the propellant itself, but the fact that um, they are liquefied gases and that allows us to, yeah, what's called use them self-pressurizing. So where uh, many other um, yeah, traditional propulsion technologies, they always need a se separate pressurant. So you have a high pressure uh, helium uh, tank and it needs a pressure regulator and all kind of heavy and complicated overhead that in our architecture is not needed. And I believe uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Chris's company also made some innovations on, on that pressurization domain. And so let's talk to Chris now. You know, I've got the feeling, and perhaps incorrectly, that Benchmark's customer ecosystem and their requirements may be slightly different. So, Chris, walk us through. Yeah, so on the commercial side, um, I, I think Yeroon nailed it. You know, um, we're, we're seeing a lot of the same trends. Our, you know, at Benchmark, we have, you know, our backlog is roughly 50-50 commercial and government um, end use. Um, so right now we have a backlog of over 200 propulsion systems um, that we'll build over the next 18 months. And the majority of them are targeted at satellites in the 50 to 500 kilogram size class. So that, that, that's by quantity. Um, we have, as I mentioned, we have products and ongoing contracts for anything from CubeSats through OTVs. Um, we had some press about the uh, Spaceflight LTC OTV that launched in December. But our pipeline highlights and aligns with kind of the trends we're seeing in in just small sat production in general, where the the bulk of the of the production by quantity is in that micro sat class, fifty to five hundred. Initially, the market was bullish on cube sats, but as folks developed the cube sats, um, they wanted the assets to last longer, get a better ROI started adding more capability and the size crept up beyond that loaf of bread to toaster oven size. So now we're back to the, the mini fridge in the dorm room. Um, so that's the commercial market and kind of the size class that, that we're most um, engaged with or, or seeing the most demand from. And with that class, you know, we, again, we want to work with customers and partners that are like-minded. So when safety is paramount, um, th those are kind of the, the, the companies we're drawn to when we're when, when we're out doing outreach and figuring out who you know wh where's the the best cooperation going to land and and who's going to work on this as a collaborative partner with us. So with that is why we use you know in that combined with some experience in chemistry and performance attributes of HTP or high test peroxide, that's the primary propellant that that we're serving that market with. Um, so again, safety first, um, very cost effective. It's extremely available. Lately, we've been hearing about challenges with um, some of the technologies that work on exotic gases like xenon or krypton and where they're sourced in the world and geopolitical challenges there. Um, luck, you know, fortunately, with high test peroxide, um, the feedstock is a semiconductor injury, uh, industry. So they use very high purity HTP for that industry. So we can get it for you know pennies on the dollar compared to other propellants. So that availability and cost is key. And um, as Erin pointed out, with with their non-toxic technology, we're able to achieve um, you know near theoretical max performance with with this chemistry as well, right? So we're in the 300 second specific impulse range, um, and and that's delivering. So folks can't point and say there's there's a cost implication, there's a performance implication. We're mitigating that um, and designing to it on the government side. 
Wait, um, before you yeah. go on, before you go on, <laughs> and I know this actually really feeds into the government side of things because the government side, especially if we're talking about, you know, some of your contracts with the Department of Defense, performance is going to be a big issue, right? I mean, why spend the money unless it, you know, can basically do, you know, curly cues. So when you talk about specific impulse, again, could you explain what that performance measure really is um, to, you know, say, you know, your general population in a more pedestrian way so that everybody can kind of get it and really understand the high performance that you're able to produce? Yeah. So um, based on the, you know, market is not benchmark specific, based on what's available today or even emerging technologies for this class of satellite, um, the equivalent to a horsepower rating is specific impulse. That's that's one of the, the specs that everybody normalizes on. Um, so there's cold gas systems that start in the, you know, 50 seconds range up through by propellants that, that can get into the low 300s. Um, so we're talking about a range of 50 to 330 seconds. Electric propulsion is in another field, um, good at way different set of operations. So this would be the camera cold gas um, class of technology for a small sat. So traditional kind of harsh, something like hydrazine, you know, that's in the, the low 200 second range. Um, some of our monoprop solution, our non-toxic monoprop solution is in the 175 range. So it's a, it's slightly underperforming at certain sizes, a mono for, for specific reasons, you would select a monoprop, um, with a biprop technology. And this is what, you know, Don's is a biprop as well. We're, we're delivering 300 seconds of ISP or, you know, we're up in that upper tier of, um, of performance in this range and actually exceeding the performance of, of the legacy harsh, but well-trusted propellants. You know, in preparing for this discussion and you both will have to forgive me a bit for, you know, having such a strong U S focus so much so that I've, you know, have to admit I've had blinders on, but there's been a lot of talk over the years about banning hydrazine, at least in Europe and, and Airbus, which is a behemoth of the aerospace industry. You know, it's a company that works in defense and uh, civilian space, commercial space, you know, that means they have a huge stake in how the EU regulates anything to do with space. So therefore, you know, they're going to probably scream a bit louder than most. But it predicts that if such a ban, you know, were instituted, that it would drastically increase costs. They're talking billions in dollars or euros. And that's even with an exemption for space activities. Now, as both of you have brick and mortar in Europe, very specifically, you know, how are your companies positioned to meet that demand if that ban is indeed instituted? And Chris, why don't you start this? Sure. Yeah, well, um, obviously, <laughs> we welcome the ban of harsh chemicals wherever possible. Um, and the cost impact narrative in my opinion is a bit antiquated. Um, so I'm supportive of economic feasibility on new tech and propellants. It's, it's been part of my, you know, experience commercializing any technology in aero, energy, and now space. Um, so, so I totally hear that it has to be economically feasible, but, you know, that that's why companies, it's important to look at non-traditional new companies who are looking at this problem differently. We're coming in at a different price point than, than some of the traditional technologies and the cost of the consumables. I think the infrastructure cost is something that um, is a bit of, 
a concern or um, folks are still looking at retiring the infrastructure they're, they're used to having or already is in place. But as far as the, the infrastructure of low earth orbit and the economy and the satellites that will be operating over the next 10 years, I think that to support this this ban um, is is why Benchmark is is ramping so quickly. We went from 30 employees to 90 employees last year in 2022, um, and and we'll we'll continue to add to scale um, both in the UK and US. We'll we're building the capability to build a thousand systems over the next five years. Um, so we're kind of. Preparing, we're seeing some of that demand, um, but we're also preparing for for continued growth year over year, so that we can deliver on the demand. Um, and like I said, I think we've mitigated the the cost and performance um, narratives that 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 kind of slowed uh, the early adoption of these innovative techs. And Yeron, what about Don? How is it positioned if this band is actually instituted? Yeah, basically the same story. We're very well positioned. We we offer the alternative that the industry needs. The performance is higher than what they're used to. The cost is way lower. So uh, if anything, um, this change will improve their competitiveness rather than uh, than uh, hamper it. Yeah, the the the, the propellants that we uh, we use, they're they're widely available. They're technical grade, typically used in the food, medical, and automotive industries. So if you know such a wide user base, the affordability and availability will remain high, and it's just you know the, the right ne- next thing to do. And and I must say, even without the ban, uh, the performance is higher, while the 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 cost is lower. So whether the ban uh, eventuates or not, uh, this technology will pro- proliferate. And while we're going towards costs, I mean, my understanding also is that both of your companies can develop the order to deliver on an order from a customer pretty darn fast because of the engines that you've developed and the fuels that they use. Am I correct in in thinking that way or am I just sort of, you know, being really nice? No, that's, uh, I would say, largely correct. So uh, I talked a bit before about the the self-pressurization aspect of it so that that takes away a lot of complexity out of a system. And when things get simpler, they also typically get get faster and, uh, and easier to implement. And that, that's on the system level, that also the fact, you know, the propellants, they, there are industrial gas suppliers, they are available with virtually no lead time, both in Europe as well as in the United States. So also that adds to, to the, the speed and the responsiveness uh, of it all. And so Chris, you know, how long would it take for you to receive an order to send up a, you know, small kitchen oven um, and I mean, you know, the the the, the toaster oven size uh, from order to actual launch. And how long would that actually take? And I would, I would imagine, I mean, time is money. Yeah. And the first uh, in our heritage units, which was a wild way to start the game, um, we got order to delivery of the engine in six months. Um, so order of a primary subsystem like propulsion to launch vehicle integration was 12 month time frame. So so that's that's on the sporty pretty rapid side of things um, from what we see. Typically for us right now, um, on a first unit, if, if a cust- most customers are still um, you know used to ordering by piece part and shoehorning in the, the subsystems. So we're still doing s- some slight configuration on the front end. So if a customer has a new configuration, um, 
and uh, and and puts in an order with us. It's a nine to twelve month lead time. Uh, for something a little more complex like an OTV, it can be up to eighteen months lead time on that. One of the main things that we're focused on is commonality and, and making it a turnkey, pre-bundled, pre-integrated thing. Um, it, the legacy behavior was buy thrusters from one supplier, tanks from another, figure out how to send commands, the electronics. That took a lot of time. But by delivering this turnkey unit, you plug it in, the command structure is the same, no matter what engine you buy from Benchmark. Um, that reduces the spacecraft integration. So um, it could take six to 12 months just to integrate the propulsion to your satellite in some cases. Um, but our customers are able to, to integrate the systems and, and do a checkout in, in two to four weeks. So removing that part of their schedule also helped from kind of concept to launch vehicle to launch day. Um, so, yeah, I think I think the market wants to be able to do that in six to 12 months. Um, and, and we're getting shorter and shorter. It was five years, probably five years ago. And, um, and most commonly now, I think I would say the, the mean is about two years from concept to getting on a launch vehicle. And, and both of your companies, I mean, when we're looking at your thrusters and your green propellant systems, the focus is on small satellites or CubeSats. Um, but I've got to wonder, I mean, can this technology also be applied to much larger satellites or perhaps even localized in-space transportation? You know, what I'm trying to gauge here is if you were to look into the future, just how far can you push these gases and the engine technology? You know, I'd like to dream a little here. Yoron, what do yeah. you think? In principle, there is uh, no limit to uh, to size or, or destination. So already right now, we're working on several projects to develop, uh, including you know, larger thrusters, radiation-hardened electronics, as well as large composite tanks uh, to enable our uh, our customers uh, to you know put larger satellites and also to to go to to higher orbits, as a geostationary orbit uh, to the moon or beyond. And yeah, we've also noticed that. Uh, um, in that we're, we're not the only one, like we, we blazed the trail with nitrous oxide, uh, but uh, lately great companies like Launcher and especially Tom Mueller's uh, Impulse have followed our example. And, and I think Tom Mueller is trying to take this, uh, this technology to Mars now. And Chris, I know that Benchmark's been talking about going way beyond LEO to um, other orbital regimes and in, into the cislunar and lunar region and perhaps even beyond. Well, how about Benchmark? Yeah, good question. So um, as far as size scale, chemistry scales up usually easier than it scales down. So I think we're, we're all comfortable with on the size scale. As far as mission range and distance from uh, this third rock, we, we do have a couple lunar missions um, scheduled. So we're really excited about that. That, that helps us um, drive to um rad hard electronics and control systems so we're, we're developing for our lunar missions um what gets exciting for whether whether a moon landing or is or isn't part of the mission um the propellants that we're we're assembling in our quiver here are isrus or that's a that's a industry lingo but it's you know it gets into the realm of isru or in situ resource utilization so we can start with water and manufacture HTP or high test peroxide. So we can produce propellant and fuel using water, which we 
uh, feel will be abundant in in our in our solar system, including on the lunar surface. And then on our you know our first EP technology that that we acquired last year, we're using um, you know it can use a range of of metals. And right now we're testing actually a block of slices from a spent propellant tank or space junk. So we can actually use water or space junk that we find along the way to refuel. So when you talk about range, you know, there, there may be no limit if you can continue to produce and refuel in orbit. And, um, you know, one of our early relationships has been with OrbitFab for refueling and, and Earth orbiting uh, missions. But, you know, when we think about ISRU, um, in situ resource utilization, um, we get really excited about, you know, the propellants that we're, we're dependent on here at Benchmark. Yaron, Chris, thank you so much for making the time to come on the downlink. Yeah, Laura, thanks again for having us. It was great. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks, Laura. It was a, it was a great discussion. Appreciate it. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow The Downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.